From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby. And I'm Brendan, and we're your hosts. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. And by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Over the last 70 years, health informatics has spurred the development of many different technologies for tracking, processing, and analyzing patient data. On today's episode, join us as we talk with Dr. Andrew Marshall, instructor of emergency medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital, and discover how combining software engineering and medicine can lead to more equitable care and better health outcomes. Drew Marshall, thank you for joining us. Welcome to Think Research. Hey, Brendan. Uh, really nice to be here. Thanks for having me on the show. So you're an instructor of emergency medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Could you tell us about your choice to pursue emergency medicine? What interested you in that specialty? Yeah, so I think when people think of emergency medicine, they think of kind of a jack of all trades. And, uh, you know, as I was going through medical school, and I think a lot of people will have the same story, they just kind of liked a little bit of everything. And I think there's, you know, some other specialties that I was interested in, like I really liked surgery, but I didn't really like the lifestyle. And, uh, you know, I really liked OBGYN because I think they, you know, practice in the operating room, they practice in the clinic, they practice on the hospital floor as well. But at the end of the day, you know, I feel like I had a lot of interest kind of outside of medicine as well. And I felt like emergency medicine gave me the best lifestyle, the best schedule, the ability to have a family. And really, like, I still feel you could pretty much drop me anywhere in any hospital, you know, across the U.S. or any kind of care setting. And I have some useful skills that I can um, that I can do. So I think it's really cool to know a little bit about a lot of specialties. You know, I think one of the things that maybe consultants find frustrating with ER doctors is that we don't know the depth of knowledge that they know, but we know how to kind of call the right people. And, you know, I think it's a job that I still find really exciting, even like through the pandemic. I think it's been something that has given me purpose and something that I still find really enjoyable. I still like going to shifts um, because I think they're pretty fun and you never know what you're going to see and you never know who you're going to meet and, and who you're going to help. So I think those are all kind of reasons that I love emergency medicine. Before you decided to go to medical school, you interned at NASA and uh, were a software engineer. What inspired you to make the switch to medicine? Yeah, so I think the full background is that I was a little unsure about whether I wanted to do medicine. I think uh, there was always a push from my mom to kind of do medicine. When I was growing up, I uh, fell in love with video games. And I was like, how do you make video games, right? Mm -hmm. And as, um, as a kid, I wasn't really allowed to play video games. And so like, I would kind of like sneak and, and right. play my friends game boys at school and, and that kind of stuff. And, uh, and so that got me into like, uh, how do you make these, which is like software. And so instead of studying biology in college, I decided to do computer science. And I really enjoyed computer science. I think like there's some beauty in the creativity of it. I think people think it's all kind of like math and, and that kind of stuff, but there's some real like design and creative thinking that goes into like, you know, how am I going to solve this problem? But, you know, the whole time I was taking computer science, I took the prereqs for medical school because I always kind of viewed biology as like this kind of, at least the way it was taught uh, when I was like in high school and, and like kind of college is that like you memorize this information and then you go and like 
spit it out on a test, right? I didn't enjoy that like aspect of it. I don't enjoy memorization. I'm more of a big picture person. Uh, but it wasn't really until um, my junior year when my dad got sick, he actually ended up in the hospital with uh, a subdural hematoma and was rushed to emergency surgery that I really kind of like cemented my decision to go into medicine. Essentially, like he had been to the hospital a couple times with really bad headaches after being started on a blood thinner for like a sports injury where he had kind of developed a blood clot. And um, they had basically sent him home twice with really severe headaches. And then kind of on the third try, he went to a different hospital, got a repeat image. So I guess they had probably missed the bleeding on a, on a previous image uh, and, and then was rushed to emergency surgery. And, and this was like right at the beginning of my summer. So I remember coming home from college getting ready to go to North Carolina to do like a program in biophysics, which is probably a little bit more on the research, you know, like computer science side of things. And I remember waking up and him and my mom not being there, which is kind of weird, you know, because like, you know, they'd normally be around, kicking around, making breakfast, that kind of stuff. And, and then hearing that he was in the hospital and rushing down there. And, and I realized that this was a big miss, right? If they had caught this earlier, I think they could have stopped the blood thinner, uh, knowing what I know now, right? I think um, it could have changed the course of what had to happen, but, you know, instead he was rushed to this emergency surgery. It was kind of then that I was like, okay, there's some things in medicine that need to be solved. There's some things, there's some ways to make things better. And kind of the engineer part of my mind was like really intrigued by that. And so I took the MCAT once, didn't do that great on it, took it again, applied to med school. You know, I don't think I ever really got the MCAT score that I wanted, but the skills that I brought from computer science and, and engineering, I think were tremendously useful and like helped me be successful in, uh, in medicine when I finally did get in. And just so people know, your dad's doing okay now, right? He's doing great. Yeah, he's doing really well. I'm actually you know, at home with him right now. And, and probably after we get off this podcast, we'll go play a little bit of tennis. But um, uh, very, uh, very lucky to kind of have him around after you know, such a scary thing. That's great to hear. So you mentioned sort of your dovetailing interests in computer science and medicine, and I think that's where your work with informatics brings those two things together. So talk a little bit about, just like briefly about what informatics is and how your kind of engineering brain and your medicine brain fuse <laughs> and do that work. It, it took me a long time to figure out exactly what I wanted to do. So I, I was in med school and I had these skills and I you know, kind of built things here and there and I went to residency and I was like, what should I do? And then I found out about like fellowships in informatics and informatics is basically, I think there's two different ways of looking at informatics. There's kind of like bioinformatics, which is kind of like how you look at data, which is kind of like a child of like data analytics. And then there's clinical informatics, which is about how you implement like these really cool data tools, AI, clinical decision support, those kind of things into like medicine. And so I ended up kind of doing a little bit of both because I have programming skills to do some data analytics. I thought it would be, I really, really wanted to get into AI. And so I basically did a, a fellowship in clinical informatics and got a master's degree in bioinformatics at HMS. And so I think it's really cool because it takes you out of just the individual kind of practitioner role. Um, and you get to think about like problems at like kind of a system level. So when I talk about clinical decision support, um, these are the kind of things that I think about helping people like my dad, right? So there are AI tools that will 
read radiology reports and suggest things to the radiologists that they might have otherwise missed. Um, and then the way clinical informatics works is you're kind of the person that understands a little bit about the informatics world, right? So the computer science world and like the person that understands a little bit about medicine. And so you're the person that can kind of talk to the radiologist as well as the person designing the system and say like, oh, this is the best place to insert this into the workflow to kind of like make this happen. And so that's kind of how those two meld. So I view like clinical informatics as offering clinical decision support to kind of um, improve the practice of medicine through synergy, right? So I, I don't ever think that computers are going to like replace what I do or what any other doctor does, but I think there's got to be a synergistic relationship that allows practitioners to practice probably at a higher, safer level than they would have been able to practice on their own. Kind of like the support that you get from like a, a car, right? That tells you when you're changing lanes or is able to help you park parallel park when you're not a good parallel parker, you know, like these, all these really cool new technologies. Uh, and I, I see that like being able to really enhance medicine rather than taking anybody's job, mm -hmm. you know, which is kind of a big fear of the field. Right, right. Like um, radiologists will just be replaced by algorithms that that read right. by by IBM Watson, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure IBM would like us to think that they'll replace every radiologist, but they're not even they're not even close <laughs> in my opinion. <laughs> That's good to hear. So one of the projects that you're working on uh, that uses analytics is a screening tool for patients who may be good candidates for home hospital. Tell us a little bit about what Home Hospital is and why this project's important. So first, I, I want to give a shout out to collaborators, right? Because none of these things happen in isolation. And so uh, David Levine and his team are the people that originated Home Hospital. Uh, and I work with Phil Anderson and Jonathan Keschner and uh, Zoe, who is a data analyst on this as well. Home Hospital is really important and it's become more important because of the capacity that our hospitals have been at. And this is kind of since the pandemic. And, and I think in my mind, I'm still a little unsure about why we've been at such crazy capacities. I think there have been waves of COVID and that's very explainable, but there have been a lot of other, you know, I think people are in general sicker. I don't know if it's because they stayed away from hospitals or if they're experiencing like, you know, side effects of COVID in the long term. but we've had like hospitals that have stayed full for pretty much the past two years. And so our ICU capacity is full. Our inpatient wards are full. You know, we're having like waiting rooms that are like 20 plus, 40 plus people, which is pretty unheard of in Boston, which, you know, traditionally is thought of as like one of the healthcare hubs in, in the world, right? We've got a lot of really great hospitals and for them all to be at, kind of at capacity is a really unusual thing. And so Home Hospital is a program that really thinks about using technology in a creative way to allow patients to get their hospital level care at home. And so everybody, almost everybody, uh, I don't want to say everybody because there are people that don't have homes, but almost everybody has a home. And if you're able to provide the care that they need at home, you're able to offload some of that pressure in the hospital. Now, a lot of the questions around that are like, well, are you going to provide subpar care for them at home? And the answer is no, you just carefully select patients that are going to do well if a doctor and a nurse come and visit them from the hospital and kind of maintain their antibiotics or maintain all that stuff. And so I think that as we look to scale this project up, there's a need for kind of being able to select patients quickly. Manual processes, I think everything right now is kind of manual. So like if I'm working in the emergency department, somebody may come up to me and basically 
ask me if I have any patients that they think are good to go to home hospital, right? And uh, that's subject to bias, right? So like, I may look at some patients and be like, yeah, these are good to go. These are not good to go, right? But we may be missing a significant amount of the patient population. So I think a really cool thing is what we're building is an ability to automatically kind of screen for those patients. And so uh, whereas a clinician like myself somebody on the home hospital team might sit in the morning and review all manually review all the overnight patients that were admitted to see if any of them could go to home hospital or manually review all the patients in the ED to see if any of them are suitable or God forbid, manually review everybody that's an inpatient, right? Um, we want to automate that process so that they kind of get a quick answer and say like, oh, we just, you know, screened 300 patients on the medicine ward in less than a minute. And these are your ones that are your greens that can go to home hospital. These are the ones that are your yellows that maybe could go if we change one or two things. And these are the people that are really too sick and they should stay in the hospital. And so I think that that is going to really allow the home hospital program to kind of scale. And if it gets bigger, I think that's that's better for everybody because then we can provide appropriate levels of care, decompress the hospital, and overall just take better care of our patient population. Great. So I want to talk about um, your work with the Office of Ideas at Brigham. You're the Social Justice Committee Chair for the Office of Ideas. Can you tell us a little bit about what the office does and what you do in that role? Yeah, so the the office is, uh, so IDEA stands for Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Social Justice. And I was lucky when I came onto the Brigham two years ago after finishing fellowship that they were starting this brand new office and they kind of invited me in to, um, I don't want to say be one of the founding members, but uh, be close to kind of like the founding. So I was the first social justice chair, still fill that role right now uh, with Demarcus Bayman, who became my co-chair in the last couple of months. What we do is we kind of look for actionable projects to improve inclusion, uh, diversity, equity, and social justice. And so while the Office of Ideas is not necessarily research focused, I think um, we think more about like, what can we do to actually like make a, you know, a tangible difference? I think there's a lot of really cool research projects that end up coming out of the cool work that we're doing. So one of the projects that has come out of this office that you're working on is about stroke education for high school students. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, again, you got to give full credit where it's, uh, where it's due. And as the chair of the Social Justice Committee, uh, I'm more of a sponsor and a mentor. So for full credit, you've gotta, I've got to give a shout out to Mariama Runsi, who's one of our stellar residents. She's a former teacher, and she assembled this multidisciplinary team from MGH and HMS. And I think the business school as well to kind of think about like how we could educate patients about stroke. And so we decided to target high school students since Mariama is a high school teacher. She has a lot of experience working with high school students. And the idea kind of behind this is, is that you've got to empower patients to make the right decisions about their healthcare, right? You don't want anybody to ignore the signs of stroke, God forbid, right? And you don't want anybody to not be able to communicate with like EMS or the ambulance when they come and get them. Because, you know, when you have the signs of a stroke, you need to go to a stroke center. And Brigham and Women's Hospital is a stroke center. There's several other stroke centers, MGH, BI across town. And, you know, what ends up happening, I think, sometimes is, is people, if they don't recognize the signs of a stroke, may be less reluctant to advocate for themselves to go to a stroke center. So I think, you know, this is kind of like a social justice issue, right? It's a health literacy issue. And I think that uh, one of the coolest things that we did was that 
we had the opportunity to go into high schools, even though we did this in the middle of COVID and um, offer live teaching, offer like these video recordings and then offer like pre and post tests for high school students and kind of see how they, they did. And uh, there were some really exciting findings. You know, I think one of the funniest things that came out of this was that, you know, students that did not receive like some sort of formal stroke education would uh, fill out the pretest get some questions right, go on the internet, look things up, and then come back and get them wrong on the post-test, right? Because yeah. like, there's so much confusing information out there that can kind of like trip you up. But the students that, you know, had the video recording or had the live teaching, they did really well. And I think this is a great pilot. That's kind of how we viewed it last year. This is a great pilot for a program that could be expanded to do in multiple classrooms, community health centers, just educating people about stroke. And it's a great example of like, almost like a non-inferiority trial, right? Like, you, can you do the live teaching? Can you do a video recording? Do they have the same outcome? And I think the students received it really well, uh, especially because like we worked in a lot of classrooms with uh, black and Hispanic students and Mariama is a you know, black female physician, which is, uh, was really well received. So I think they enjoyed learning from somebody that looked like them. So I think that was a really powerful project and, and one of many really cool projects coming out of the office. Yeah, that's cool. I like what you said about just having somebody who looks like the students in a doctor role. You know, they're learning about stroke education, but they're also learning about career paths and, you know, they're they're learning something that is maybe less, I don't know, tangible. Yeah, a lot of people see say you can't you can't be what you can't see, right? And so like, just by being there, I think she definitely like made a big change. And I think that like, that's part of what we want to do through like mentorship in the office is just like, you know, do some cool stuff, you know, help some people, you know, we provided scholarships last year to a bunch of kids, but also just be there and, and, and just represent and show that there's like a path forward in medicine and, and whatever else you want to do. So you talked at the beginning about the experience you had with your father and his hematoma and thinking like this, the system kind of failed him. And that prompted you to think about equity in medicine. So as you, as you do this work with the Office of Ideas at Brigham and in just your practice, how, how do you see your work in equity and informatics continuing? What do you see as the future of this work? I think it's a it's a interesting problem to solve. One because like I think when you think about technology and medicine, you can see a lot of examples where lack of access to technology can deepen, you know, health inequities. You you can see that lack of like health literacy can like you know, make things a little bit worse, right? Because we kind of have this one size fits all approach where we assume that like everyone can use the tools that like we as English speakers, we as like people who are familiar with technology and have, have had access to technology our whole lives, uh, we assume that they can use those same uh, technology. So, you know, I have a vision of like both making technology more available, more accessible, and using it to kind of close those gaps in, in health equity. You know, I think we got to start by getting kids, parents, patients, like access to broadband and, and devices. You know, I don't want to say that like broadband access should be a right, but it's like really hard, right? Like if, imagine if you didn't have broadband access during the pandemic and you were a kid in school trying to get an ed education, right? You had to zoom into everything, right? 
imagine if you're a patient and your clinic has gotten shut down in the pandemic and you had to do telehealth and you don't have broadband access. So, you know, you can see that these things are uh, affecting the social determinants of health, right? They're affecting education and they're affecting your ability to, you know, even like see your clinician. So we've also got to think about using technologies to communicate with patients in the way that they would like to be communicated in. And I think that this involves thinking about language. This involves thinking about like tech literacy levels. You know, I, I think that telehealth can take a lot of different forms, right? Um, so telehealth can be a phone call. Telehealth can be a text message. Telehealth can be an email. Telehealth can be a very complex app that you, you know, navigate to do like video chats and stuff like that. So I think taking all those things into account, we have to build a better healthcare system that both makes technologies accessible when we need it for our patients. And kind of coming back to what I said earlier, you know, accessible, not only like physically having the technology, but accessible in like being able to understand what's going on. I look forward to kind of like pushing that agenda, right? To building tools that um, patients can, can uh, use in the emergency department and elsewhere. You know, for example, I think one of the things we haven't talked about is that I've partnered with like e-ink, Dr. Chai and myself, uh, Peter Chai, we built these screens in the emergency department that basically provide information to patients real time during their visit. And, uh, you know, the first iteration of this project was kind of like only English speaking patients with information that is provided in a contextual way, but we saw that satisfaction increased. And so thinking about this project going forward, if we could provide patients that are traditionally kind of marginalized, right? Like non-English speaking patients, patients that don't have like the ability to have a cell phone in their hand and access patient gateway while they're in the hospital and look at their information, we're really doing a service to them, getting more engaged and taking ownership of their health to move things forward. And we know that when patients are more engaged, they, they have much better outcomes um, because you know they have better understanding and they're, they're more willing to make the changes that they need because they can understand those changes. So using e-ink screens to show patients information about their visit while they're in the hospital. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? So we're working on kind of publishing these right now, but we did kind of look at, in a very small sample size, actually, we kind of looked at uh, how patients reacted to getting their information uh, in real time. And it actually showed in some categories because we use um, you know, kind of Prescani, which is the satisfaction score that most ERs use to kind of like assess like how satisfied patients are with their visit. And we looked at it and there were some significant findings. So it turns out that patients that like kind of saw the board, they felt like they were kept more informed about delays. And also uh, they felt like they knew what to do after discharge. And this is a really important thing because like as an ER doctor, I think about like often, like, what do my patients understand what I told them to do after discharge? Do they know, like, fill this prescription? Do they know when to come back? And I think that's like one of the biggest things in emergency medicine, because sometimes there's a lot of uncertainty in emergency medicine for the patients and the doctor, right? And you don't want to send anybody home that's, that's like really sick, but sometimes you have to have that discussion and just be like, look, if you feel worse, come back to the emergency department. And I think like having a tool that helps them understand their visit and they afterwards can say like, oh yeah, like, I feel like I know a little bit better, like what to do after discharge is really good. And having a tool that kind of explains delays or lets them know where they are in the process of uh, just like their emergency to, uh, medicine visit can kind of like help them be more engaged, get better outcomes, ask better questions. Hmm. So what was the inspiration behind that project? 
So I think we were basically um, the Brigham was approached by uh, by E Inc, which is a large cop corporation. They make e paper screens. Those are used in Kindle screens, and they said, "We have this great product, and we want to use it in healthcare." That you know resulted in uh, us getting linked up with the company uh, as people, you know, as providers and 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 hopefully like innovators, right? And so we thought like, well, like, wouldn't it be great if patients could see where they are in their visit, right? Because um, I spent a lot of time in fellowship thinking about this problem as well. How do you reduce anxiety? How do you engage patients? And then like, once they're engaged, how do you display like contextual health information to them, right? Because I think what we're seeing now is that a lot of, now that people have instant access to their records, there's not always context as to like what the results mean. Is this radiology report like uh, this incidental finding? Is this something scary I should be worried about? Is this lab value that's like one point over something I should be worried about? And so it's creating a lot of questions. So I think being able to, during the visit, provide the information to them with context was something that was like really exciting to us. And so I think a really cool way to use this technology within medicine. Yeah, that's great. I think that example of the e-ink displays is a great example of seemingly small things that can have a big impact on people. Yeah, for sure. Recently, there was a 21st Century Cures Act passed, which says that everybody, there's no information blocking, right? Everybody has access to their healthcare record. But if you don't have a device and you're in the emergency department, then we've got to figure out a way to get you that information, right? Because the people in the room next to you that do have their devices are checking it. They have better access. They have they have an advantage, right? And so to kind of bridge those gaps, we got to think about like, how do we equitably distribute technology and how do we do it in a way that kind of removes the barriers of health literacy? Great. Well, Dr. Andrew Marshall, Instructor of Emergency Medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital, thank you very much for joining us on Think Research. It was a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Yeah, it was really nice chatting with you guys. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, Please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community. To learn more about the guests on this episode, visit our website, catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch.